Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, in for Christopher Conover. This week, a look at mental health emergency services in Arizona. America is dealing with a mental health crisis. Issues ranging from addiction to suicide reached peak or near-peak levels in recent years, prompting the nationwide adoption of 988 as an emergency number for mental health crises. While the number is used across the U.S., each state has its own system to administer calls made to that number. In Arizona, helping people with mental health and addiction crises is the jurisdiction of the Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System, commonly referred to as ACCESS. To learn more about how an agency that is most commonly associated with the handling of the state's Medicaid insurance program took on administration of mental health crisis response, I spoke with ACCESS Deputy Assistant Director C.J. Luisel. Several decades ago, uh, Arizona stood up our crisis system and we ran it through our behavioral health system at the time, which was under ADHS or Department of Health Services and um, That recently, in 2016, the Department of Health Services moved their Division of Behavioral Health Services into ACCESS. It was a merger. And so ACCESS now oversees all behavioral health services, grant-funded services, and uh, crisis is a part of that network. There's probably a lot of folks out there who aren't very familiar with 988. When should someone call that number rather than 911? Any time that a person is feeling depressed, lonely, thinking of harming themselves, um, or just needs help getting in touch with a provider for any kind of mental health services, 988 is a great way to connect to that and an easy to remember dialing code. So differently than 911, um, it's not the police or fire or ambulance services, it's a crisis line. So it will direct you to a crisis counselor that can start to work with you on what's going on and get you connected to the right services or sometimes even help you resolve the immediate issue right there on the phone. So you mentioned those counselors. What kind of training do they go through? SAMHSA requires all 988, uh, they call them lifeline centers, all of the staff at the the lifeline centers to go through rigorous training for safety and risk assessments, de-escalation, and general counseling, and then referral and resource connection. Um, It's all available on the SAMHSA website and um, what the minimum training requirements are for those. Uh, but they're very well trained and, and supervised by high level behavioral health clinicians that uh, make sure that folks are receiving really great quality behavioral health treatment when they call these lines. What kind of options are there for, for what could happen? What tools do those counselors have on hand? So they have resource lists uh, for their local area so they can connect to an outpatient provider. So just your regular behavioral health care provider in the area that you are living in. Uh, They can also, of course, you know, really provide tools for self-coping and and relaxation, de-escalation type of uh, techniques. But majority is really community-based. So based on the community where you are living, the, the uh, counselors are able to let you know what's close to you, what's available, and really help educate you on how to connect to those services. Now, how do these uh, counselors who are the operators kind of differ from uh, mobile staff that could be sent out? 
So it's a uh, mobile staff actually will get into a car and come to you uh, here in Arizona. We've been fortunate to have crisis mobile teams as a part of our network for many, many years. Um, but in some states, that's not available here in Arizona. If uh, maybe a person is really in distress, very, very much um, unable to calm and, and relax and accept uh, resources by phone, uh, the crisis counselors able to request a mobile team to be dispatched to that person's location. So they could be somewhere in the community, in their own home, and someone will come to them and really help kind of figure out what the next plan is for that person to keep them safe and help them on their journey to wellness. You've mentioned some facilities, some resources that are on hand. Tell us a bit about those. I mean, is this just simply getting someone in touch with a mental health professional? Are we talking about things like hospital psychiatric wards, some sort of state-run facility, or, or something else entirely? So the resources and referrals really will depend on the reason for the call and what the person is willing to accept. Uh, you, you know, we talked about the mobile crisis teams. That's our first level of intervention. All behavioral health services, including crisis, we try and provide the least restrictive, least invasive um, uh, treatment modality. So that would be the first step. If a person um, want, needs maybe more stabilization observation, here in Arizona, we have what we call crisis stabilization facilities. Uh, it's kind of like an emergency room, uh, but for specifically for crisis stabilization, where a person can go um, and see a higher level clinician, a doctor, um, and really figure out a longer term plan that will get them back to the state of wellness that they need to be in to overcome the crisis. From there, uh, if a person were to need maybe a week or two at an inpatient psychiatric unit, the crisis observation staff will coordinate a transfer to a longer term uh, facility for ongoing treatment. We have been talking a lot about this as, as Arizona. This is obviously a system put together by the state. How does our system for this differ from other states, but both for the good and, and things that you see other states doing that you're like, hey, that's a good idea. So in Arizona, because our system has been around for so long, it's, it's considered a very robust and mature system. We've already got a system. We have local crisis lines that we've maintained, uh, some of them for over 30 years here in Arizona, um, which is different from other states, which may not have had crisis phone systems already in place or mobile dispatch. So in other parts of the country, while they're standing up this process in support of 988, Arizona is integrating 988 and that three-digit dialing code into our existing system. Um, so what that means is we have a heavily utilized, uh, very mature system, and we're bringing in a new component. And uh, so we need to maintain what we've already got and adapt to this, this new influx of community knowledge of the system and ease of access being a three-digit number that's easy to remember um, and really bolster and foster that cohesiveness without breaking that mature system that has already been in, in place for many years. Earlier on, you mentioned the nurses' lines uh, as an alternative to 911. You know, police departments also have non-emergency lines. Is there anything like that in our mental health crisis system where people can get uh, less emergent help with a problem? 
Absolutely. Um, our state system and which 988 integrates into uh, for crisis calls is also connected to a network of what we call warm lines uh, where people can uh, maybe they're not having an urgent crisis emergency, but they need someone to talk to and they need some community resources, things like food insecurity and housing issues uh, that they really need to talk through and find some resources that are more um, less urgent. We can connect from those crisis lines directly into warm lines and then those folks are able to contact the warm line back directly as well. So it, we do have those options and those different levels of assistance available, but they all really start through our crisis uh, call center and which can be accessed by our local state numbers or by 988 now because we've, we've uh, integrated those together. Thanks for spending some time with us today. No problem at all. That was C.J. Luisel, Deputy Assistant Director with the Arizona Healthcare Cost Containment System. You're listening to The Buzz. I'm Zach Ziegler, in for Christopher Conover, who's off this week. We're talking about mental health crises and how Arizona responds to them. While Access is the administrator of 988 in Arizona, if you dial that number, you'll likely be talking to someone at Solari Crisis and Human Services. The nonprofit has provided crisis response for more than 15 years. Beth Brady is Solari's chief brand and development officer. I started by asking her what exactly Solari does for the state's mental health crisis work. So we offer the statewide crisis line, which is a 10-digit number. It's local. And then we also are the 988 center for the state of Arizona. Um, Luckily for Arizonans, no matter which line they call, whether it's 988 or the 10-digit line, Solari are the folks who are answering the calls. But those are two different services when it comes to contracts. Mentioning the people who answered the calls, you started as one of those people, yes? I did, yes. Um, Almost 10 years ago, I started as a crisis specialist taking crisis calls in the call center. And I had a background in mental health and as a licensed counselor and really enjoyed the crisis work, um, the high stakes of being able to help someone in their most critical time was really rewarding. And um, now that I have moved on to our administrative department, it's really exciting to see how can we outreach the community, let folks know that we're here and available for them should they ever need us. Given your background, I'm sure you'll know this. When someone dials 988 in Arizona, what happens next? So when someone in Arizona dials 988, they will hear an automated recording that will say, thank you for calling 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline. If you're a veteran, press one. I think there's a couple of other options that someone can press to be connected to specialty services. And then it says, if you like to connect with your local center, you know, please hold while we connect you. And then the call gets routed to the local center, which in Arizona is Solari. And then we pick up the phone and take it from there. It is important to note that just because you're in Arizona doesn't mean you're going to get Arizona's 988 center. If you move from another state and still have that phone number, I'm from Minnesota. If I had my Minnesota number, I would actually get routed to the Minnesota 988 call center. Um, It's a little bit of a barrier in terms of connecting to your local service provider, but um, that's the way the calls are routed right now. 
what's a typical call like then? I mean, do these last seconds, minutes, hours, how, how do they usually end? So I'll start from the beginning when someone calls their crisis line. You know, there's a little bit of just demographic information that's collected, name, date of birth, phone number. And that's just to make sure that if we get disconnected, we can call the person back. And then it is the crisis call is part of like a medical record. And so we do request name and date of birth. However, if someone wants to remain anonymous, they can. So once they get those little details out of the way, then they want to know what led you to call us today. So the specialist is going to ask the caller, um, you know, what made you reach out? And because we know that crisis is defined in a lot of different ways for folks, it could be going through a divorce, it could be thinking about suicide, it could be troubles at school. And so we really want to hear from the caller what the crisis is in their own words, and then do our best to help figure out how we can help support them. So once the crisis is identified, we'll do a quick assessment to find out, you know, if the person is at risk for danger to themselves or anyone else, they're thinking about self-harm. And if not, then, you know, we might talk about other resources that are available, connecting them to counseling. If someone says that they are thinking about harming themselves or have suicidal thoughts, then we'll do a little bit more assessing to see how at risk the situation is. And if that person needs someone to respond in person or if they're in a safe place where they really just need someone to talk to, maybe this is the first time they've opened up about having suicidal thoughts. What's usually the most common thing that one of your operators would hear about when someone calls in? Number one reason consistently month after month is self-harm and or suicidal thoughts. So, and that can be a little bit deceiving because I think when someone in the general community hears suicidal, everyone's mind goes to it's risk right now. We need to send fire and police and we need to rescue this person. But suicide is on a spectrum and at the lower risk end, it looks like someone who is having a hard time and feeling like, I don't know where my life is going from here and I just wish I wouldn't wake up tomorrow all the way up to I can't go on like this anymore. I can't live like this and I'm developing a plan and collecting the things I need to carry out this plan to end my life. So that obviously is very high risk. Those types of calls are very low in terms of percentages. I would say it's less than 5%. Um, but we talk to a lot of folks who are going through things where they're feeling hopeless. They don't see a way out of this maybe tunnel that they're in. And they feel like there's a lot of shame and stigma around having those thoughts. And so it can be really hard to open up and, and talk about them. And I think that's one of the great things about the crisis line is the non-judgmental nature of that conversation. You know, anything kind of goes and we can help support the person through those thoughts. So how busy has the call center been lately? And is it getting busier? Is it, you know, maybe ebbing more than flowing right now? It's the short answer is it's been very busy. Um, we see call volume fluctuate month over month, usually a couple hundred, a couple thousand. And there are a lot of different reasons for that. So it's hard to pinpoint why exactly we see those changes. 
We do know um, in the spring, folks are higher risk for suicide. And so we see a higher number of calls related to that. During the midst of the pandemic, we saw a lot more calls related to anxiety and depression just around happenings with the pandemic, um, job shortages, layoffs, those types of things. In terms of overall volume throughout the state, we're taking about 35 to 40,000 crisis calls a month. Um, and we see that fluctuate, I would say, between 32 and 40,000, depending on the month. That's quite a number. How many operators does it take to be able to get through that many calls and help that many people? <laughs> it takes a large team, that's for sure. I don't know the exact number of crisis specialists that we have on the team right now. I'd say it's around 200. And, you know, they're starting their shifts at all different times of the day. We're 24 7. So we've got. You know, at our lower volume time of day, we might only have seven specialists working. And then at the high volume, we might have 25. So you mentioned that you came into this with a background in mental health. What kind of training does a typical operator receive? What do they walk in the door with? And what do they get after that before they start answering phone calls? We have a really extensive training process. Before they come in the door, we're looking for someone with four to five years of experience in the mental health and or crisis field. So sometimes we might have folks who have been case managers at an outpatient clinic or working in a hospital inpatient facility. Those are some common places that we that staff come from. And then when they get to Solari, even though someone might have background in mental health, a lot of times crisis and suicide prevention are not a specific area of focus, whether by education or in some of those settings. So we take a lot of time to talk about crisis theory and theoretical models around suicide. And that's about a week of what we call our classroom training, where they're really just learning content and the why behind what we do and how we do it. And then it transitions into more of the on-the-job training where they're learning how do we enter in call notes and what do we say over the phone? How do we ask questions in the assessment? And then how do we help resolve the situations that the callers present to us on the phone? Um, all in all, I would say our training process is anywhere from three to five weeks on average. So there's that one one week, give or take, of classroom training, and then there's two to four weeks of kind of hands-on where they're shadowing with a specialist and mentoring one-on-one um, -on -one with someone until they're ready to take that first call on their own. And I say on their own, really that means they're answering and they're talking through it, but they've got someone listening in to make sure that they're you know properly trained and ready to handle those situations. So we've talked so far about the phone intervention side, but there is also an option for in-person. What goes into the decision that talking to someone over the phone isn't enough and that someone needs to be seen face-to-face? -face? That decision is really collaborative with the caller. Sometimes the caller might make that um, request to say, you know what, we've 
we've spoken for 20 minutes. I still am not feeling safe. I'd really like someone to come out and meet with me in person. Or on the flip side, it could be the crisis specialist has done a full assessment. They've built a rapport with the caller and they still have concerns. You know, they're having that feeling of, you know, your assessment is showing that you're at a little bit higher risk. Maybe they don't have family or friends that can check in on them and it's a Friday night, they're gonna be alone for the weekend. And so it might look like the specialist saying, you know, I'm still concerned about you. I, I feel, I don't feel good about us hanging up right now. How would you feel about having a crisis mobile team come out and sit with you and see if there's anything else we can do to support you in the moment? Sometimes these situations will get even more dire is there a point at which traditional emergency responders are dispatched yes that does happen it is less than one percent of the time here in arizona uh, i'm always hesitant to share that not to share the stat because it is such a few and far between number but i think one of the major barriers to people reaching out to the crisis line is the misconception that if I call and say I'm suicidal, they're going to send police to my house. And so that's something that we're always trying to combat as the crisis line to say, someone's experiencing a mental health crisis. Law enforcement isn't the proper response. Mental health professionals are. However, if it's reached the point where someone is suicidal with a weapon and a plan to end their life, it's at that point where mental health professionals aren't going to be um, adequate. We need law enforcement support to just secure the scene make sure that everyone remains safe. And then we can step in and have that mental health intervention. Well, Beth, thank you very much for talking with us today. No problem. Thanks for highlighting the important issue. That was Beth Brady with Solari Crisis and Human Services. We've heard about how 988 works in Arizona and who answers the phone, but what comes after a call? Samantha Larned reports on possible next steps for those suffering a mental health crisis in the state. Dr. Margie Balfour is the Chief of Quality and Clinical Innovation at Connections Health Solutions, an organization that provides service at one of over a dozen crisis response centers across Arizona. Our centers are really meant to be a place where anyone experiencing a mental health or substance use related crisis can go for immediate access to help, whether that's walk-in urgent care, if they need to stay overnight, or you know even for a few days longer. Balfour says that many people experiencing mental health crises end up in places that are not equipped to take care of them, such as emergency rooms and jails. And so what we do with our centers is we try to make it easy for officers to drop off to us instead of taking them to jail. So we do that by having a really quick drop-off time for them and never turning anyone away, no matter how severe their, their mental health crisis is. According to Balfour, about 45% of the center's patients come via the police, 15% from crisis line mobile teams, and the remainder are walk-ins and transfers from emergency rooms. The Tucson Center sees between 700 and 1,000 adults and two to 300 youths per month. People come to the center for a range of issues, including suicidal thoughts, anxiety, substance use, withdrawal, and paranoia. If you walked in, you would be checked in at the front desk by one of our behavioral health technicians. And then in the urgent care, you would see one of our social services staff, so like a case manager or a therapist. And then if you need to see a provider, someone who can prescribe medications, then we have 24-7 coverage by either psychiatrists, nurse practitioners, or physician's assistants. From there, the crisis response team works with the patient to create a plan. 
They have financial eligibility specialists and case managers to work with insurance or help apply for Medicaid. Connections Health Services is focused on providing long-term solutions in addition to their immediate crisis response. Connections is in our name because that's what we do. We connect everyone to everything else in the community. Our goal is to get people to where they need to be after we've gotten them stabilized. The center connects people with treatment programs, group homes, or whatever they may need. One of these programs is Hope Incorporated, a peer and family-run organization that has been operating for over 30 years. It currently has seven locations across Arizona, with two new ones on the way. Hope Inc. CEO Dan Halley has been with the organization since 2010, and before that, he was a case manager and would refer people to Hope Inc. We identify as either being a person with a substance abuse or mental health disorder or a family member or both. We have um, grown from the days of being a drop-in center to we are currently licensed as an outpatient counseling service so we can provide a variety of services. Hope Inc. focuses on peer support and using lived experiences to help others in recovery. One of the services they provide is a warm line for Pima County residents. We use our warm line to call folks and say, you know, hey, we understand you just got out of the crisis situation. How are you doing? You know, ask some of the basic things. Did you go get your meds? Did you have any food in the house since you were in the hospital? Things like that that normally may or may not be included in the discharge plan. In addition to self-enrollment, the organization takes referrals from family members, hospitals, courts, jails, and crisis centers. Hope Inc. works to connect people with centers for Medicare and Medicaid services, get them to their next appointments, educate them on their rights within the public behavioral health system, and help them to create a natural support network. One of our major roles is to really teach the member how to take control of their treatment. Most of Hope Incorporated's funding comes from Title 19 Access and Medicaid funding. It also contracts with Pima County's three health plans and receives grant funding for certain individuals and services. Once a person is assessed, they get to decide how they want to continue their recovery. Hallie says that some members have been in the organization for years, starting with daily visits and now coming by about once a week. We even have occasional snowbirds, folks that live back east, but this time of year now they come back. Hope Inc. is one of only two peer-run organizations in Arizona that also provide clinical services. I like to use the words that we're a recovery center that offers clinical, not a clinical setting that offers recovery. For The Buzz, I'm Samantha Larned. And that's The Buzz for this week. Find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz, Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Thanks to our production assistants, Samantha Larned and Phil Howard for their work on this episode. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Zach Ziegler. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.